0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa. Bhutang sankangnamasami. So I'm continuing on with the word of the Buddha and the next uh, part of this series of talks. And I just will let you know, I think I announced this last time that uh, the people over in Hong Kong, who I go and see, they call call themselves BIF, Bodhinyana International Foundation, they've agreed to actually to print this. So they have a few copies you can read and little booklets coming soon. Probably not until maybe April or something. But anyway, they're putting it in a, in a hard copy. And as I go through this, the next part of it, I'll do stage by stage here, is Nibbana through Anapanasati. Sometimes when we talk about Anapanasati Sutta, this is uh, Majjhima 118. But by giving it the title of Nibbana through Anapanasati, it's making an important point. Many of you may have heard this before, but here we go. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it completes the four focuses of mindfulness, the Satipatthana, and I always like to pause there. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it completes the four focuses of mindfulness. I always was told when I was a young Buddhist, that mindfulness of breathing is Samatha practice and uh, focuses of mindfulness, that's Satipatthana practice. And what it's saying here is when you do the Samatha practice of mindfulness of breathing, it completes the Vipassana practice of Satipatthana. In other words, that distinction is just not there in the suttas. Uh, Samatha and Satipatthana or Vipassana are the same. They go together. And when the four focuses of mindfulness are developed and cultivated, they complete the seven enlightenment factors. When the seven enlightenment factors are developed and cultivated, they complete true knowledge and deliverance, enlightenment. There we go. Mindfulness of breathing completes the four focuses of mindfulness. And how does mindfulness of breathing, developed and cultivated, complete the four focuses of mindfulness? He's explaining it, having given the introduction, this is actually what happens. Are you okay there? I was just doing the, the uh, temperature control. When the in-breath and out-breath are long, you are aware that they are long. When the in-breath and out-breath are short, and you are aware that they are short. When you learn to experience a hold of the breath as you breathe in and out. When you learn to calm the breath as you breathe in and out. On those occasions you are mindful of the body, not just the breath, you are mindful of the body having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. In and out breathing is regarded by the Buddha as a body in the category of bodies. That is why on that occasion a meditator abides mindful of the body, having restrained the five hindrances, energised, fully aware of the purpose and mindful." And that's, you know, I gave it a little uh, index one, next one is two. You don't see those indexing in the original um, Dripitaka and the reason is because they never used to do those types of little one, two, three, four and five. I found them very helpful. As I also find helpful, as I mentioned to you so many times before, if you ever look at other translations or renderings of even the first of the four stages of um, Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, you will see it gets so complex, when the in-breath is long, you are aware that it is long, when the in-breath is short, you are aware that it is short, when the out-breath... And even when I say it, sometimes I get confused what I'm supposed to be saying, in, out, out, in, long, short. And it's much better if you translate it in a way which is, can, doesn't alter the, the information being conveyed, but makes it more precise and short. And also uh, that third um, part of the uh, the first four stages of Anapanasati when you learn to experience the whole of the breath as you breathe in and out. When you, when you learn to experience the whole of the breath. In Nepali the they call it in the whole uh, body of the breath. And sometimes people think that this means that at this particular stage, you are watching your body. But in a sense you are, because this is how the Buddha, I didn't add this in, this is straight as it's uh, written uh, in the uh, Sutta Pitaka. Uh, when you are in and out breathing, is regarded as the Buddha as an example of body, in the category of bodies. That is why on that occasion a meditator abides mindful of the body, having restrained the five hindrances, energised, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. So saying the first of the uh, uh, Anapana Sati, first four stages is the first Satipatthana. I think because you've been listening to me for so many years, many of you, I think you actually can accept that very easily. But if you tell that to some people who have been practicing vipassana and just vipassana, they get a bit sort of surprised. They thought in vipassana training do anapanasati first and then you uh, flip over to vipassana. They say you don't need to do that. Anapanasati, the first four stages is fulfilling of the first satipatthana, completes it. Any questions about that so far? Let's see what else we have. When you learn to experience joy as you breathe in and out, when you learn to experience pleasure as you breathe in and out, when you learn to experience the mental formation of piti sukha as you breathe in and out, when you learn to calm this mental formation of piti sukha as you breathe in and out. On those occasions you are mindful of experience. Experience is a translation I give for Vedana, the second uh, focus of mindfulness. You are mindful of experience, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. While being mindful of the pleasure associated with this stage of breath meditation is being mindful of experience. That is why on that occasion a meditator abides mindful of experience, having restrained the five hindrances, energised, fully aware of the purpose and mindful." you are just carrying on with Anapanasati, but I'll point out a few f- points here, uh, a few factors. You see how it is uh, written, the first four stages, when in and breath are long, you're aware they are long, you learn to experience the whole of the breath, learn to calm the breath, what actually are you doing in those first four stages? What are you doing in these next four stages? You learn to experience joy as you breathe in and out. You don't just breathe in and breathe out, you're focusing now on the joy and the pleasure which accompany the breathing. And one of the most important points here is uh, the third of the second uh, tetrad, when you learn to experience the mental formation of piti sukha as you breathe in and out. And many people will think that's just a technical point, but for me that was really important. What you're experiencing now experience it, is the mental formation of piti sukha as you breathe in and out. What you're happening, the piti sukha is not just how you normally experience the breath, it's when the mind is now sort of experiencing the breath, not just experiencing the breath through the, fourth, the fifth sense of bodily touch. You're experiencing the breath mostly as a mental formation through the sixth sense. You're knowing the breath rather than feeling the breath. And that's what happens when you learn to experience the joy and the pleasure which comes as you're breathing in and breathing out. And to me that was an important understanding, an important stage of my own meditation. When I was meditating, I was enjoying it. And you know that first of all, you know, I was almost brainwashed into thinking if you're enjoying it, it can't be really good practice. You're supposed to understand suffering. And every time I was smiling, it said, take that smile off your face. You're supposed to be understanding suffering. As if like religion would always be suffering. And I remember just going to churches as a kid, just in a choir, believe it or not. My chanting voice was very sweet when I was young. I don't know where it's gone, but nevertheless. Uh, But (laughs) uh, I remember those churches when I was young, this was in England, they were cold. And the pews were just hard wood, no cushions, no heater, and it was all very, very cold stone. There were no carpets, and to me it was just, you know, too just austere, but that was kind of what you expected, you know, especially, you know, monks and nuns to be ascetics. Do any of you look at me and think I'm an ascetic? Am I not following the path? There's a happiness there and that joy is the most important part of the path. You're saying here, you're learning to experience joy as you breathe in and out in meditation. Learn to experience pleasure when it comes up. It's like you're encouraging it. You're allowing it to be. And it soon grows to enormous quantities of piti sukha. And you don't need to make the distinction, what is piti, what is sukha, here we say just joy and pleasure. And that used to be a question which was asked so often, you know, in retreats when I was young. What is pity, what is sukha? And it does not matter to distinguish those two. And I say that because they are always together until the point you get into the third jhana then one of them vanishes and then you understand what the other one is. But up until that point, it's just you enjoying the meditation, it feels delightful. And to actually emphasize that point, sometimes I used to give talk after talk and write books about the beautiful breath. The breath isn't beautiful, it's not like a sunset, but just trying to figure out how to explain just how delightful it feels. So I called it joy and pleasure. Should be in and out, and you experience this. What actually is? It's a mental formation. It's not how you feel the breath. It's what the mind adds to it, the mental experience of breathing. And then you calm this mental formation of bhutasukha. That's for some people. That what are you talking about? Calming it? You kind of you allow it to be powerful but not disturbing. It doesn't diminish in its intensity, it just becomes more even. I don't know another word to actually, to, uh, uh, to replace calming by. But anyway, you learn how this happens. So it's not what you do, I'm gonna calm it, I'm gonna experience pleasure, I'm gonna experience joy. You learn how that happens. And most of it, you allow it to happen. You don't make it happen, you just stop blocking it, and it happens naturally. And when you calm that mental formation of pity, as you be then and out. On those occasions, you are mindful of the fading of experience. Having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose, and mindful. And that's really important. Each one of these, you need you know, many of the five hindrances to be weakened. To be restrained. And when they even for the first four stages, being able to watch the in breath and out breath, the five hindrances have to be restrained. They're even more restrained in these uh, second four stages. For being mindful of the pleasure associated with this stage of breath meditation is being mindful of Vedana. You're filling, fulfilling the Vedananusati. The second of the Satipatthanas. And this is why, on that occasion, a meditator abides mindful of experience, having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose, and mindful. I'll just go on a bit further. When you learn to experience the chitta, this is something which sometimes. I can't understand why anyone says they're practicing the uh, third Satipatthana if you don't have nimittas and jhanas. You don't have the information to be able to do that third Satipatthana. When you learn to experience the chitta, and how that actually happens is when you see these beautiful lights in the mind and the nimittas. These are pure mind objects. When you learn to experience these lights, when they come in the mind, they're there and you can experience them. You learn to brighten the nimitta, we call it like sampasadanang chitang. And sampasadanang, the word pasada means like some f- confidence, but it also means like you make it beautiful. And that's of course what happens when these lights come up in the mind. You know, sometimes they're just weak lights, but eventually they become incredibly bright, incredibly beautiful. And So you need to give it that energy first of all. As you in and out, you learn how to do that. How do you do that? Just don't be afraid, just don't be any wanting, just be patient. And the energies of your mind, natural energies, just build up the joy and the happiness. Then you learn to settle the nimitta. It literally means samadahang chitang, which means like to still it. The word sam- uh, samadhi, to settle something, and also stillness, is uh, one of the words we use in the Vinaya. And you know, we use the Vinaya to samadahang, uh, the problems or difficulties or responsibilities, which the monks have. So if there's any duty I need to do, like organize the Vesak, then actually to do that, to settle it, that's like samadahang as well. To settle it, bring it to a sense of peace. And that's also why Samadhi also means everything gets stilled and settled. And that's where that stillness is a far better description of what happens in meditation and concentration. So you learn how to settle the nimitta, to keep it nice and still as you breathe in and out. And then the last of the four of the third tetrad is when you learn to enter the jhana. We call it like liberate the jitta, free the jitta, free the the nimitta. In other words, now the nimitta is even further away than the five sense world as you breathe in and out. On these occasions you are mindful of the jitta, having restrained the five hindrances, energised, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. I do not say that there is development of mindfulness or breathing for one who is dull, who is not fully aware, and reaching a jhana with the hindrances gone. That is why on that occasion a meditator abides mindful of the mind, having restrained the five hindrances, energised, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. So this is like developing the nimittas and then entering the jhana as a third satipatthana. That's how the Buddha described it. So I don't know how other people teach you to practice vipassana, but that third uh, focus of mindfulness, you do need nimittas or jhanas to be able to do that. Otherwise you haven't completed it yet, you haven't got the data to contemplate. And the next four. Oh, sorry. When you learn to explore impermanence in breath meditation. When you learn to explore things fading away in breath meditation. When you learn to explore things ceasing in breath meditation. When you learn to explore relinquishing things in breath meditation. On these occasions you are mindful of mind objects, the Dhamma, having restrained the five hindrances, energised, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. Having seen with wisdom the impermanence, fading away, cessation and relinquishment of the five hindrances, you are mindful with equanimity. That is why, on that occasion, you are mindful of mind objects having restrained the five hindrances, energized, fully aware of the purpose and mindful. That is how mindfulness of breathing, developed and cultivated, completes the four focuses of mindfulness the four satipatthanas. So, one of the first parts, to explore impermanence. Do you know what impermanence is? Anicca? A lot of times people say, yeah, I know what anicca is, impermanence. I've been to the Buddhist societies, gone on retreats for so many times. But we think we know what anicca means. And having been a monk for such a long time and you know, learning your Pali. Now you see that the word Anicca comes up in other contexts as well, in what we call like worldly contexts, where you can understand it with much greater accuracy. And one of those uh, usages of the word Anicca and its opposite, Nietzsche, is with monks food. It is something which we call Nietzsche food, Nietzsche butter. And Nietzsche food is things which come uh, regularly. For example, I know on Tuesdays, sometimes over in Bodhinyana Monastery, the Anagarikas call it Thai Tuesday, because in the afternoon, uh, sorry, not in the afternoon, at 10.30, a load of Thais come, actually present the food to us. We can also say in the early morning, We have a regular supply of food on Tuesday morning from somebody who's been bringing breakfast to the monks for how many years now? A long time. So much so that, you know, if you don't come, is it Tuesday? (laughs) We got the date wrong? That is called Nietzsche, but regular supply of food. And that's one of the reasons why you get to understand what Anichia means. It's not just impermanence. It's something which was regular, always there, is no longer there, disappearing. That idea of Anicca is much more deep and profound. To give a simple simile, Anicca is not looking at, say, a lake on a windy day and seeing the waves, the water rise and fall down again, rise and fall down again. That's an Anicca which is superficial. The which we're talking about in deep meditation, is when you see the waves go up and go down, the level of the water rise and then fall down again, but then you see the water totally disappear. That's Anicca. Something which has always been there and now is gone. An irregular supply of food. Something which, you know, you don't realize, well, how can it go? but it has gone. That powerful Anicca, that is what gives you a new data, challenges you and actually makes you see the Dhamma much more deeply. I don't know if that's ever happened to you in meditation, I hope it has. You're meditating, you're sitting down there and then you can't feel your body. You look for it, you're perfectly aware. But you can't feel your hands, your back, your bottom—nothing. It disappeared. It's aniched, aniched. You know, making an English word out of a Pali word. It's like, on a few occasions. I don't know if you had these experiences. I was fortunate when I was young. I never took drugs, and that was a personal reason. When all my friends started taking them, my father was very sick. One of my friends, he was taking some marijuana and got caught and he said his life was a mess at home. I remember him telling me that on a bus, uh, going home from school and I said "I I can't do that because my father was very close to death at the time, he died when I was 16 and I thought at the time if I took any drugs and if I got caught, if my father found out it wouldn't be upset him, it would literally kill him, it probably would have done. So that came me off any drugs, until at such a time when I became a Buddhist and was told by the meditation teacher, don't do any drugs, and I had enough confidence, I followed that advice. So I was very fortunate. But what that meant was that when interesting things happened in meditation, like things disappeared, I was ready for that. I think you all know one of those stories, on a Zen meditation retreat in the north of England, still a lay person, and I had done a lot of meditation, usually breath meditation, and now I was told by the teacher then, not to watch your breath, but to stare at a wall in an old barn, whitewashed wall with your eyes open, just remain still. That was all the instructions I was given. And I thought, okay, let's give it a try. I was courageous enough, I must have been about 19 at the time or 20. Courageous enough to give anything a try, see what happens. That's always been a part of my nature. And so you were looking at that wall, eyes open, not moving, and then I wasn't thinking, that was the most important part of this, I was just Watching, being in the moment. And then what happened? The wall vanished. It was one of the weirdest things you could imagine. You were sitting there, perfectly alert, watching a wall, and then it wasn't there anymore. My eyes were still open. That was an example of anarchy. Something which was there has now gone. And there's no reason why it should be gone, it just vanished. And of course, I mention this a lot. That soon you understand why it's perfectly natural, if you can be still enough, that your brain is only wired to notice things which change. In all of your senses, the sound of the aircon. After a while, you can't hear it. You know the temperature of the room it may be cold when you first come in here, or hot. Afterwards, but if you don't pay attention to it, it's not that important, the brain turns off. You can't feel it anymore. So much of your senses is only preoccupied with things which change, which like disappear, come and go, if they stay the same, they vanish in a much deeper way. The whole of the sense of sight had been turned off for me. It Came back again afterwards, it was really cool. You know, when you can see a wall, and then nothing. So that's, anicha is far deeper. And of course I can't resist, no, this is not the word of the Buddha, this is the w- example of Ajahn Brahm, about the simile of the tadpole and the frog. Hopefully, how many of you do- have never heard of the simile of the tadpole and the frog? You know. only two of you. Many of you have heard this ad infinitum. It's a very nice simile. A tadpole lived in the water, grew up in the water, can never know what water is. No more than a fish can. The difference between a fish and a tadpole is one one day the tadpole becomes a frog. Once it becomes a frog, it doesn't know what it's doing because it's been living in the water all its life. But One day it jumps out of the water. And that must be kind of traumatic for that frog. Never experienced a lack of water before. Now it's squatting on the edge of the, uh, the lake on dry land. There's No water around, just air. And only now can that frog understand what water was, once it's disappeared and vanished. When things do start to vanish, then you got an understanding of what they were. What is your body? You may be a doctor and cut up bodies all day. You know, in the old days here, we used to be able to go to Sir Giles Garden Hospital to go to the autopsies. And that was really fascinating, especially talking with the, uh, the coroner, you know, the person who actually cut up the bodies. And we was kind of wanted to say, when you cut up a body every day, that's your job, you know, do the autopsies, does that actually change the way you... One of the monks was brave enough to ask this question. Does that change the way you relate to your wife? You know, he was a young man. Do you see her in a different way? Just another old body, you know exactly where this is and that is inside. And He said, no, he, he compartmentalised. You know, the, the, the corpse on the table was like not a human being. just something to be cut up and have a look at and see what was the cause of the death. But nevertheless, I kind of was interested in, in his response. Because if that was me and you're cutting up bodies all day, you just look at you just like a body on the slab, only just able to talk, having sort of some conscious experience. But you still remember just what well, this is, just a body of stuff, the like 31 parts of the body. So anyway, this is where you explore the impermanence, the nature, the thing that this body vanishes, really does. It's not just this body, the five senses, they can just turn off. And then you can only do that if you've, again like the frog, become a frog, you can jump out of the lake. And to me that simile is when you have got the ability to experience nimittas or jhanas, you can jump out of this world of the five senses and the five sense world can disappear. Then afterwards you understand this five sense world and the body in a much much deeper way. So when you learn to explore impermanence in breath meditation, you notice I never said to think or to contemplate. because if you think you're just using this language which ties you to old experiences, doesn't allow you to explore new experiences. The idea of exploring is going to places you haven't been before, seeing things and understanding things in a language which is totally new. So explore impermanence. And the same thing, you explore things fading away in breath meditation. This is what's happening. Now your body's fading away. You're Five senses are fading away. They don't just all go in one moment. You know, one disappears, and there's a few others left. And one of the last senses which disappears is the sense of sound, hearing. That is always the reason why in a person's in a coma, you know, it's a, a, a physical problem, or they're you know, in a jhana and you need to get them out, you talk to them with a kind, not threatening because I might just make them go deeper, in a kind words and they come out. That's why the Buddha said that sound is a thorn to the first jhana. You can actually kind of penetrate it sharp enough to get in there, only when the first jhana is weak. So you can explore things impermanence, fading away and things ceasing. That's when they're totally gone imagine that, you can be perfectly aware and your ears are okay, your eyes are okay, your nose, your body's okay, you can't feel the body at all. Even if somebody touched you, you wouldn't be able to feel that. They shouted at you, hey! You can't hear it. And even if they put electric shock defibrillators on you, (laughs) you can't feel it at all. That was what happened with that. Uh, Layman Greg, who used to come here years ago, you can't feel it at all. You're perfectly healthy, perfectly aware, of the sixth sense, uh, six senses, so the sixth sense of your mind, but not the rest of the body. And you're still alive. You come out afterwards. When people have those experiences, it's really cool because. I remember when he came and reported to me what had happened and I said, he was taken to Sir Charles Gardner Hospital, if you know the story. And his wife thought he was dead. And the medics who came in the ambulance to actually to pick him up thought he was dead. But they took him to the doctor and the doctor thought, well, let's give him a chance. You know, interestingly, I say this because I want every one of you to know this. If you see me sitting here, and you know, I'm perfectly still and you say, Oh my goodness, he's gone, he's died. Check my body first of all, is it warm? If it's warm, you're in deep meditation. If it's cold, then you can cremate me dead. <laughs> and that's what happened with this guy, Greg. The doctor on duty there says he knew from his wife he'd been meditating. They found him sitting in meditation. And the uh, news was me meditating. It was still warm, which is not supposed to happen if you're dead. But there was no brain activity. There's no heart activity. All of that had flatlined. But nevertheless, it kept on giving him defibrillators in those days, you know, to try and shock the heart to go. Nothing worked. I've never been defibrillated, but I've seen it on uh, documentaries. They put electric shock on you. How on earth can you not feel that if you're alive? You know, you go above the table, it's really so extreme. But anyway, he didn't feel anything. He was just busy blissing out inside. When he came out of meditation, imagine what that was like to the doctors and his wife. What what have you been doing? You just decided to come out. (laughs) Perfectly healthy. And I still remember asking him, what did it feel like, you know, during that time? He said, it was "Blissing out, beautiful states of deep meditation, perfectly aware, deeply aware." If there was anything unpleasant about it at all, he said, "Oh yes, the scolding he got from his wife on the way home. <laughs> his wife really let him have it. Don't you ever do that again." I don't think he listened to his wife, by the way, because he did it again. (laughs) But at least you know now he wasn't dead. He was just going deeply inside. So that thing's fading away and things ceasing. And then you can learn from those the importance of relinquishing things. Especially when it gets to the time close to your death. I often said, I said this when I gave a talk over in Singapore recently, we were talking about dying and how Buddhists can learn and become experts in dying. When you get into these deep meditations, it's like a class on how to die. Dying 101. Because you understand, you can relinquish relinquish things, you don't have to be afraid. It can be very, very, very beautiful. You're getting close to non attaching to your five senses in the five sense world. What would happen if you totally give up attachment to the five sense world? Who knows? You're a a non-returner at least. The third stage of enlightenment or maybe you go a bit further and go to the fourth. This is what's supposed to happen. You're becoming enlightened. So anyway, that is how mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated completes the four focuses of mindfulness. Any questions? Any comments? Any complaints? Okay Eddie, I am going to restrict you to two questions today so this is your
1: oh first. no <laughs> okay Choose
0: wisely <laughs>
1: yeah two i think the, the first one Ajahn Brahm, you know, you're talking about um, doing meditation to calm us down okay yeah
0: and now i'm doing more than that this is about meditation to practice this, uh, the other four uh, four satipatthanas
1: yeah yeah then you're you're talking about the, you show us the ways in it to, yes. okay, yeah. so this guideline they, they, these are guidelines okay more towards those new and learning you know once if you are more advanced you don't have to go through it you can mm. sit
0: still and be it's one over here is about yeah. as fast as you can get yeah uh-huh. talk about what leads to enlightenment mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so you can't get more advanced than that
1: but this, the, the, this these are all the guys, you know like you're building long and short all these things oh, and yeah. Then, yeah, these are the guidelines go through. Once you know this, you now when you sit, you you know you, you yeah. don't have to go through all this already. Ah. It comes you naturally, I think. Okay. And then you, you go to the later stage, like you have the later ones which you are trying to explain to us now.
0: Yeah, so that's true. That you don't always have to go through stage one and then stage two mm. and then stage three and stage four. That sometimes when you start meditating, sometimes you just... You know, when you're on a retreat, sometimes you wake up in the morning and the nimiters are right there. It's beautiful lights of mind is so strong, the sixth sense has been so empowered, mm-hmm. it dominates the other five senses. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you, you go for your breakfast mm-hmm. and you're taking whatever you're eating, it's like you have to put it through a nimitta to put mm-hmm. it into your mouth, a big nimitta in front of you. Mm-hmm. Even just, you know, your uh, you're walking, f- eyes are fully open, but that sixth sense is so strong the nimitta is superimposed upon everything else. Mm. It's lovely if you experience some of those things because they're weird but they're, they're fine, you're very happy, very having a great time. You don't feel scared, you feel just this is very beautiful and very enjoyable and very safe. So what you do, and now if you finish your breakfast, you sit down. You don't need to even watch your breath. The limiter just comes up straight away. Mm. The sixth sense dominates. Mm. That makes sense.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Do you want to see something?
1: Okay. Yes. Yeah. Prem. Uh, hi, Ajahn. Um, it Says here when you learn to experience the chitta. Brackets nimitta. Yeah. Are they synonymous, or is the nimitta like a sign of the chitta?
0: The nimitta is the way you experience the chitta when it first arises. Because a lot of times, you know, people say they realise you have to experience the mind. The mind is the forerunner of all things and stuff like that. But what is the mind? And it's because in our Western culture, we abandoned the mind. And you know, until science keeps telling us, and this is a big argument we have with science, that the mind is just some, um, uh, what is it, extra quality of the brain, it doesn't really exist, it's just a brain thing. But then we have all these wonderful pieces of data where people's, they, a, I was talking about this with someone recently, John Lorber, Professor John Lobb of Sheffield University wrote this article. It's in 1980, 40 years ago, but I always remember this because the article was called, The Boy With No Brain. And he was doing experiments on the shape of the human skull. I'm just looking at some of your skulls, anyone, which is just a bit weird. I didn't actually remember once, I hope he's listening. Do you remember like Sol, Sol Hanna, used to be one of our presidents. He looked like a bit bit of a strange shaped skull. But anyway, this was the expert in the world on skull shapes and whether a strange shaped skull meant that you were socially different, intellectually more advanced or whatever, what it does to your life. And so he would be in Sheffield University in 1980, he would be looking at all the students, if he saw one whose skull was a bit distorted, He'd invite them onto his program, just do a CT scan of the brain, or whatever they had in those days, and just to check him out, see whether he was socially uh, happy, intelligent, or whatever. And he found this young man. He was a graduate student in maths. He'd only got his first degree. He was studying for his second degree. And he, his skull was a bit deformed, so he gave him the, the scan, and that's when he found this boy did not have a brain. It was just... Um, Uh, Intercranial fluid, and he said to be accurate, that got people's attention. Didn't have a brain. He had one percent of the amount of cortex which was expected. Nothing else. Totally impossible that he could think, that he could speak, that he could have any high mental functions at all. Let alone, you know, having a girlfriend and having a uh, a doing his. advanced degree in Mathematics, he was incredibly smart. He never had a brain. And I always remember just talking with this doctor in Sydney, discussing such things as I love discussing as much as I can. That's why sometimes I talk about these things too much. I apologise. But every now and again when I say things I get some more information back. And this doctor, he was driving me to what Buddha Dhamma when well, I was going to teach a retreat? And he said, I've seen those scans in, I think, was it Walpins Alfred Hospital in Sydney? And he said, we've got copies there. And they were done again to make sure there was no mistakes in the machine. And he said, I said, well, what happened? That was amazing. And he said, they've been filed away as an anomaly. In other words, they know they exist, but they put them back in some sort of cupboard somewhere, because that would be challenging millions of dollars of research on the brain. And basically it's uh, economically not viable. So That's not science, you can't just put things in a back cupboard because they're too hard to explain. But it's there. And sometimes to make these talks a little bit more interesting, I ask people, can you move your head backwards and forwards? Can you hear any sloshing? If you can, we'll give you a CT scan. You've just got intracranial fluid up there. Doesn't mean you're not intelligent. This kid was really intelligent. So anyway, we've lost really our understanding of the mind. That's when you see a imitator. That's one of the first times you see like a mind distinguished or separated apart from the other five senses. Oh, my goodness, it's gorgeous. When I thought <laughs> that you just No. Look, you deserve some enjoyment in meditation. It's okay. You deserve some fun. And, you know, sometimes that was good, being rebellious. And you don't just push them aside because, you know, they're enjoyable. They come up, stay with them, get into them, investigate them. Let's so just explore them. They're huge and they're just full of so much uh, teachings of Dhamma. I don't know people who say ignore them. Sometimes. Please, are you Buddhist? Are you meditators? You know what you're talking about? The best thing is to actually to get into them. Okay, so the the are full of information. Oh yeah. You're finding out what your mind is. What a mind is. And that's incredibly powerful. Look, it's this simile comes up simply because uh weird stuff comes up with, um, in meditation, in life. (laughs) When a person dies, when you sort of really die and your brain shuts off, what do you see? You see the light. What is that light? That's a limita, that's your mind. And if your mind has been reasonably good and attractive, you get pulled into there. And that was that lady, uh, what was her name again, the Hong Kong lady, she was Indian, but she was in Hong Kong, Uh, Murajani, who wrote all these books. The reason I keep mentioning her, because her GP at the time, in Hong Kong, moved to Australia, and he's now my GP. That's uh, Brian Walker, who's got his, uh, practice out in serpentine, West Australia. I don't know why he chose that place to come. I'm very glad he did. (laughs) Maybe, but anyhow, what happened to her, she went into that light, incredible bliss, she called incredible love, she was a Christian, she interpreted it as being one with God. That's a pretty amazing thing to experience. When she came out afterwards, now after beautiful experiences, deep summit of blissing out, you get insight. Her insight was the cause of her cancer. You know, not just a, a theory, but understanding it deeply because she was trying too hard to please uh, other people all the time. That stress. And that's what she came back with. And that cured her cancer. And, you know, these amazing insights which basically saved her life. And so. When you get into these nimittas, these incredible experiences, you're accessing your mind. Now I've told you about the Anita Murajani case, why did she experience that? As far as I'm concerned, that was a real nimitta, that was her mind. But she experiences that because she was a Catholic, as a, almost like a union with God. Why? Number one, because the experience is the most intense bliss, peace you've ever had in your life and that experience is indistinguishable from your experience like pure love, I mean really pure, intense and basically your sense of self is not there, you can't do anything. It's a selfless and if you've been brought up in a Christian, a tradition, You would experience that as you're not there, incredible bliss and power, great wisdom and insight. What the heck would that be? You would say it was like a union with God. And I think that many times Christians who get into those states, they come back and that's what they say. As Buddhists we know there's a little bit more to come yet. But, and that's one of the other things, I can't, you can't get rid of my sense of humour if it is a sense of humour. Sometimes it's really just hard as a Buddhist because, you know, if you got a few jhanas under your belt and you were a Christian, they would name hospitals after you and schools. There'd be St. Brahms school before <laughs> oh, I don't know what. Saint Chagas. That sounds better than St. Brahms, but St. Chagas. <laughs> That's how highly they're regarded and that some of you as well, you know, some lay people get jhanas, they would St. El's Academy <laughs> for gifted children or whatever, I'm not sure what. But that's how much they're elevated, you know, in uh, some uh, religions. But nevertheless that's what happened, these are limiters. And when they get the fully developed one, the powerful one, Oh, that gives you so much bliss. My goodness, why not? And it's not just for the time you experience it, afterwards, the five hindrances are gone for a long time, and you're just basically treading on air for the next two or three days, if not longer. Yeah, go on. Uh, Ajahn, you mentioned that
2: hearing is the last of the senses to go away in a jhana situation. So does it mean that hearing is the most uh, impacting thing in your senses and which me- probably means if so, um, the slightest of the noise can disturb you getting into
0: stillness yeah, I think more than any other? My theory on that, it's not explained by the Buddha, my theory on that is that you know, the sense of sound is your last defense against danger. You know, you, you hear the tiger in the jungle because you can't see it, you can't smell it, you know, if you feel it, it's a bit too late. So usually the human being has over many generations of developing the human body is actually made sure that the hearing is your last piece of defense. Fire alarms, burglar alarms that usually sound. You wake up in the morning because of an alarm, ding 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 ding. And that's why I think we've been conditioned into taking sound as the last sense to defend our physical integrity. Okay, so it's nothing to
2: do with getting into stillness. With nothing to into stillness, no. no.
0: Because a lot of times you can just, just keep that sound away. It's, and if you're starting getting into stillness, and I've told her, you that story about doing walking meditation and getting to so stillness, I didn't realize how still I was just doing walking meditation until I heard this sound from a long way away Brahma Wang So Brahma Wang So. It was like you're hearing it sort of a mile away or something. And I was walking in this hall in uh, Bangkok and I thought this was interesting, where's this coming from? And there was another monk shouting in my ear hole. His mouth was here, right next to my ear hole. But that's how it perceived it, is my sense of sound had almost turned off. But there was still a tiny bit left, enough to hear him. And then of course I realized it's my mistake, I was supposed to go to a ceremony and I'd forgotten. But he was wise enough, he knew what meditation was and I was just really zonked out in my own little world. Your own little world. You can't hear the sounds outside, they feel like a long distance away. So that's sometimes what happens. Yes. Noise suppression. Oh yeah. Yeah. I find that Yeah. You can put the head uh, the earphones on which suppress noise. But you find you can still hear uh, 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 the sound of your own breathing. You can't? Okay, very good, excellent. For a lot of time you can hear the thinking. The thinking is always disturbing. Okay, I'm just almost going to surpass Ajahn Bamali here, when he takes just you know about three or four weeks to do one paragraph. But anyway, the questions are really important. But anyway, that there's much more to this. There's four focuses of mindfulness, complete the seven enlightenment factors. But there's some questions on the machine there? Yeah please, okay. Shall we do those questions first? Can I ask you guys a question? If you don't, if you just feel it's inappropriate, please let me know, but how many of you in your life have experienced a nimitta in meditation? Ah, That's good. Excellent. Yeah, okay, thank you for putting your hands up. Because that's why sometimes people ask me, Said you talk all of these things, how many people actually experience these things? And that you do, it gives me a lot of encouragement to keep on talking like this and also to develop those nimitas. Now they're supposed to be de- developed, not to push them away as if they're, they're hindrances, but it's what actually overcomes the hindrances. So next time just go deep into them and enjoy it to the max. I'm sure that many of you, the deepest and most wonderful experiences you've had in meditation, where well with these nimitas or the next stage of jhanas. If it is well done. Keep it up. Sorry? Yeah, exactly. When the nimittas are there you go much more deeply, it's much more enjoyable and you want to meditate more and more and more and more. And You have retreats, you don't get bored on retreats, oh yeah, nimitta time, yeah, bring it on. (laughs) Sorry. A question from Ivy in Sydney. Is the Buddha nature, true nature of mind in Mahayana similar to Jhana in Theravada? No, totally different things. Both sound, sound like the gold of Samatha practice. Thank you. Uh, jhanas are one of the stages to the goal of Samatha practice. What is the goal of Samatha practice? Nibbana, enlightenment. So jhanas is just part of the way. That's why we call the eight uh, factors on the Noble Eightfold Path. It's a path, and then the. I don't know. I remember me saying the story when I started looking uh, through the the Angutunikai. They have the ones, this, the twos of that, the threes of that. When I started reading that for myself in party, I thought it was more accurate. I got to the eights, and I thought, oh, the eightfold path will be in here somewhere. And I read through all of the eights, the eight things in Buddhism, and you couldn't find the eightfold path there. It's not in there. And I thought, this is weird. And I kept on reading, and it's in the 10s. The reason the 10s, because not only have the path, but the result of the path. And if we practice the path, this is where it leads to, the consequence, and is enlightenment, and also the knowledge of enlightenment, which I also like those two factors, and the 10th one. It's not just you're enlightened, but you know you're enlightened. The idea of people being enlightened and not knowing is total go gomayang. You all know what gomayang means, don't you? What does gomayang mean? People tell me off for saying it, so I'm going to get you into trouble instead. If you don't know what it is, you can ask me afterwards. I'll ask the person sitting next to you. Anyone smiling, they know the meaning of go gomayang. <laughs> very good. It's B.S. with the full word. So, Buddha nature, true nature of mind in Mahayana, similar to Jhāna in do no. The next one from Yongjian. What is the meaning of fulfilling the Satipatthana? That's coming next. When you fulfill the Satipatthana, you fulfill, complete the seven enlightenment factors when you complete the seven enlightenment factors, you're enlightened. This is what happens when you do the Anapanasati properly, you fulfill the the Satipatthana properly, then you fulfill the seven enlightenment factors, you're enlightened. That's what the meaning is, fulfilling it, taking it to its natural ending. Question three. While having a peaceful meditation, I had imagery vision. It was very vivid and feeling that I was doing something wrong in this past life memory. That is like what we call like complicated nimiters and you've added to it some negativity. So what to do if you have any what we call complicated nimiters scenery instead of just one beautiful, bright, incredible, blissful light. If you get the real nimittas, they should be simple, in other words, not complicated, not sort of a a vision like I'm just seeing the trees and the the leaves outside, but simple. That's why most of the time it's just like a simple light, like a moon or a sun or something which is simple. But the other thing about it is that the light which you see, you don't, please don't imagine this, it's either real or it's not, it's nothing like the lights which you see in the real world. Any yellow or blue is more yellow, more blue, more pure. That is why uh, one of the nimittas which I, you know, remember seeing, I told all the monks about this, it was not a great, well it's actually how I reacted was not that good, I saw a you know, nice one-range retreat, nice beautiful meditation, getting very still, very peaceful, things started to disappear, and this beautiful yellow figure. And this was like a yellow I've never seen in the real world, but then I noticed its shape. And as soon as I recognised its shape, I just couldn't help myself. I burst out laughing and that was the end of my meditation. It was a figure of Garfield the cat. I think I'm the only person in the history of Buddhist meditation who's seen the Garfield nimitta. <laughs> i would be looking at too many cartoons in the newspaper of Garfield. <laughs> it was him, you know, little black lines, but the yellow was just so incredibly gorgeous. And I said, "That's a nimitta, but it's a bit too complicated. I've, I've ruined it." But if I have, if that ever came up again, instead of laughing. This is too important to waste laughter on. You go to just a part of it. That's the way to actually develop like a nimitta. You have an imagery vision, it's very vivid, and had the feeling I was doing something wrong. Please don't ever think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's been conditioned by some teachers who don't know what they're talking about. The Buddha talked about developing nimittas. Good. It's mentioned here. You're supposed to do this. You know, the third Satipatthana. So, if you do see an image vision which is complicated, many shapes, that what to do is you focus on the most beautiful part of it. And again, this is similar to this. I felt like I actually saw him in Singapore recently, and he was one of my attendants when I was teaching a retreat in Malaysia a long time ago and I mentioned these nimiters and what they're like and he made an emergency interview with me. He said he saw this, this nimitta but it was like a cloth, parts of it were nice but other parts of it were like a dirty old cloth which should have been gone to the laundry a long time ago, all stained and grubby and I straight away I told him, I said, how have you been keeping your precepts? He said, yeah exactly Ajahn Brahm, I understand. I'm sorry. <laughs> in other words, his virtue was lacking. And that is how it appeared. You can't lie about this. You see it right in front of you, this nimita. It's grubby. And so he got very disappointed with himself. Does mean I have to sort of give up all these things, these little vices? I said, it's best if you did, but nevertheless, I know the loopholes. And I said, instead, when you see a dirty old nimiter grubby, stained, make... How come many of you are so interested in this? And say, Is that relevant to you? <laughs> and I said, if you see a dirty old nimitta, <laughs> you focus on the most beautiful part of it. There's always a more beautiful part of it, a more clean part of it, and you zoom in on that. And then you zoom in on the most beautiful part of the most beautiful part. And then you zoom in on the most beautiful part of the most beautiful part of the most beautiful part. And just all that grubby stuff just falls off the screen and you get amazing limiters that way. And that's actually how it works. So even if you do have, uh, it was vivid, the feeling you're doing something wrong, Focus on another part of that nimitta where you feel this is beautiful and you can't resist its gorgeousness. You may be doing something wrong when you watch a sunset, but it doesn't mean you can't watch a sunset. Enjoy it. And that feelings of doing something wrong, that's negativity, just fall off the screen. You get beautiful nimittas that way. That's how it works. Yes? See a what? A skull. Yeah, a skull, that is like a nimitta, but that's a complicated nimitta. So what to do? Many people, if they see like a skull in their meditation, if they stay with that skull, soon that skull becomes like pure white. And soon the color becomes incredibly beautiful. It becomes like nimitta colors, like a white which you've never seen in your life before. And then it's just you focus in on some part of that skull which is just even and that becomes like a, the most wonderful, beautiful image you've ever seen, it simplifies it by zooming in on it. And Many times you can take the, the image of a skull, if you know what you're doing with it, it gets so beautiful, you get so much piti sukha and it soon just becomes even, it's just a, a white light, in the form of skull is not recognizable anymore. That's actually how it works, whatever you look at, you don't call it skull anymore. Skull just actually gets you into that nimitta realm. Oh fear? Oh, my, you've got nothing to be afraid of. Okay yeah, fear. I don't like fear. There's too much fear in this world and when you're meditating you're incredibly safe and just say, them, what electric shocks on you, don't even feel them. You get all these stories of these, there we go again, of like monks being underwater for days. And you know, they, they don't die. They can't even feel it, they're perfectly healthy. That video which, actually I loaned it to someone because I wanted to get it translated, it had a, a Sinhalese commentary on it about one of my students over in Sri Lanka, a doctor, and he actually, uh, one of his students was in Jhana, and he actually um, exposed his um, uh, muscle on the arm, got out a scalpel and tried to cut it, and the scalpel wouldn't cut, it wouldn't go through. It was, and he videoed it and put it on TV in Sri Lanka somewhere. And then he told the student what he'd done, and the student trusted him, you know, this uh, doctor was his teacher and told him what he'd done and the doctor asked next time, would it be okay if I tried again? He said, yeah, no trouble. That's how much trust he had. So the next time, uh, the the guy in meditation was in jhana, the doctor opened his own eyes, exposed the uh, the, uh, arm, put some disinfectant on, took out the scalpel, and this time it cut through the skin and then he sewed it up again put a bandage on it and told him when he came out of the meditation, what had happened. Had it all videoed. If you ask permission, then it can cut. You still can't feel any pain because you're apart from the five senses. But I thought that was an amazing little experiment because it showed that even a doctor with a sharp scalpel couldn't make any cut in your skin when you're in the jhana. You're incredibly safe. So that's why, please don't have fear. Instead just really get into it. Be fearless and you've got a good right to be fearless. That's why I talk a lot about this, to make sure if anything ever like this happens to you, please don't waste these wonderful experiences out of fear. The the the, bli- the, bliss. Oh, the bliss, oh my goodness. Don't you guys want to bliss out? <laughs> Why not? The best happiness in the world. Okay, here's another Ajahn Brahm City's shitty joke. People ask me, is there any danger at all for getting into these nimiters and deep meditations, the jhanas? I said, well you know, I have to be honest as a monk, yes there is a danger. The danger is you may lose all your hair. <laughs> <laughs> you want to become a monk or a nun? <laughs> yeah, go on. I'm actually a Christian. When I come here, I'm actually all the time so I'm becoming familiar and I'm learning to manage this. Excellent. I have never had visions or been able to see things like Christian or not being able to see things.
2: Excellent. And I'm thinking, uh, you talked about, like,
0: saying, this is also something that you, you know,
2: and you, I know that the nation is, like, pure life, just... Yeah. ...matching you. Um,
0: How are a very concerned about is that something that is also a Buddhist thing, or is that something coming from somewhere else? Look, it doesn't really matter if you're Buddhist, or you're a Christian, or Muslim. Whoever you are, a mind, a, a, a woman or a man, old or young, whatever culture you come from, we have a mind, that sixth sense, which is the same for all human beings and all animals and all beings. So once you actually start to let go of this body, you let go of your gender. You let go of your race. You let go of your age. You also let go of all that conditioning of being a Buddhist or being a Christian whatsoever. You're finding out for yourself the nature of the mind. It's like being a scientist. Buddhist, there's no sort of Christian science, Buddhist science, Islamic science. It's just science. It's just, you know, wisdom and truth. The only difference is that when we come out of these deep states, how we interpret it, we've got to describe it to ourselves. And it's a story we tell about a true experience. That's actually, sometimes if you don't really know those experiences well, we can make arguments. They're not arguments, we're describing the same things, but from different cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So keep on going, Mm -hmm. enjoy yourself to the max. We were just talking today, I'm get getting into further trouble. That's why I was a bit late coming in here. I was talking with the other monk here about, you know, here we go, I'm going to go totally off subject about, you know, was Jesus a Buddhist monk? And I'm not just saying that, I mean, there's a huge amount of information about that. And this Venerable Sarato got really excited because I was telling him that the way that we had uh, goods coming from India into Europe, you know, was from the port city of Sopara, that's the north of Mumbai, It went past, you know, Aden used to be called Asiatic of Felicitius or something. And from there, Philadelphus Ptolemy, about three centuries uh, before BC, or two centuries before BC, he built a port. And it was, I forget the name, now. It's a very complicated name, Benecesia Troglodite or something. And anyway, it was only, this was in Lower Egypt on the Red Sea on the west side of the Red Sea and that would be the port city which would receive all of the goods from, e- from uh, India and from there it would uh, go over uh, to the Nile and up the Nile to um, Alexandria. And it was, I know that reading some report, I was really interested in that years ago, reading reports there were, uh, in that port city there were some gravestones with Budang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami inscribed on them. But you know, that's one thing. But he was looking into this just before I came in here. And uh, a couple of uh, years ago, they uncovered a big Buddha statue there in that poor city. And they, they excavated and found one, a very beautiful one. If you you want to find out more, tomorrow ask Venmo Sarato, can you have a picture of that, please? And the Buddhists were there in that time. And that would be the way that you you would go over to India. and From there, from the Soparaka up to uh, the center of Buddhism in India at that time was in Kashmir and uh, uh, Kanishka. That was the dominant religion at that time. Buddhism wasn't always dominant in India but that time it was at its peak of power. Please, I, mean, I don't want to make some Buddhism is better than anything else. I hate doing stuff like that. But just saying that, you know, was uh, Jesus a Buddhist? No. Yeah,
2: Christianity, as you would know, is changing a lot now and yeah. I'm fortunate to be studying around that change now. Excellent. But Thich Nhat Hanh also wrote a beautiful book called Living Buddha, Living Christ. Yeah, good. And Thank in you. that I learnt more about Jesus' teachings. Yeah. It brought him alive to me. Yeah. But I'm also nat- noticing people like Jack Cornfield Oh yeah, and he was under Ajahn Chah, I believe. Yeah, also only for a short time. You know, his teaching crosses both, and I'm seeing so much now, even in the Catholic nuns, where yeah. Jesus is starting to be understood for what he was trying to say, and we're going back to the, back yeah. to the roots. Yeah,
0: indeed. Getting back to deep meditation. Yeah, it's very really nice talking like that because it means that you know the separation we have in our world. Gets actually eroded away. Okay. Okay. So anyway, uh, hopefully I did that question from UK peaceful meditation had image vision. It was very vivid, feeling I was doing something wrong. Is this a past life memory? Nothing. It's mostly present life conditioning, because you're having something interesting, something beautiful there must be something wrong. <laughs> isn't, yeah. that, you know, isn't that kind of disgusting? That really worries me. Why when you're enjoying yourself does it have to be wrong? A lot of time it's the most right thing you've ever done in your life. Why are we afraid of pleasure? I mean that the pleasure which has nothing to do with the five senses, with inspiration, with joy. So anyway yeah I think I'm catching up with Ajahn Mali. I just did one section there so I don't have to worry about what I'm going to do next time <laughs> so thank you all for listening and uh, I'm now going to just bow three times to Buddha Dhamma Sangha put that on there so I can be careful because it's got so many connections there I enjoyed that Samasabuddho Bhagawa Udhan Bhagavantan Abhiwade Suwakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhamma Namasami Supatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango Sangam namam.